going to be reading Psalm 118, verses 21 to through 23. You can find it in your Pew Bible, page 566. I thank you that you have answered me and, and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Amen. Good morning. Um, the Old Testament scripture reading today is uh, found in your Pew Bibles on page 494. Uh, I'll be reading Job 38, 4 to 7. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me, if you understand, who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. And for the New Testament reading, if you turn to page uh, 1080, we'll be reading Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 through 22. Remember that all that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the laws with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord and in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. There is a children's song that I used to sing as a kid that many of you know. It tells a story from a parable Jesus taught. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock, and the rains came a-tumbling down. The rains came down, and the floods came up. The rains came down, and the floods came up. Rains came down, and the floods came up, and the house on the rock stood firm. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. The rains came down, and the floods came up. And the house on the sand fell down. 
I'm not great at lyrics, so if I substituted one word for another in there and you know the correct one, be delighted to be corrected later or now, but that's the gist of it. That is the essence of that particular uh, story and song. We sing that for a particular reason. We sing it because it gets into our heads with its little tune, and as we mature and grow and begin to understand the nature of things, we know that our lives are built on something. We know that our choices are built on something. We know that who we are and our identities are built on someone. And so this song repeats a parable that Jesus told. I have reason to be encouraged. I have reason to be encouraged for the larger Seventh-day Adventist church after my sabbatical. And I'm going to share with you just briefly a couple of reasons for that encouragement. One is that I've been, this uh, part of the sabbatical has been spent at La Sierra teaching a class. I've been teaching a class in homiletics, which is the art of preaching. Now, if only they knew <laughs> uh, how strong or weak I can be at times in that. But nevertheless, when I hear these young people develop their scriptures and speak, when I hear their stories and when I hear them speak about the truths that they've gathered and hear their theologies, I'm excited for the future. I'm excited for what is coming. I'm excited for what it means. I'm inviting them to come speak to us, hopefully, one Sabbath here. I don't know if they will accept that invitation, but they've been preparing 10-minute homilies, and since I'm the teacher, I can take away a lot of points if they go over. <laughs> so um, it's been really fun to hear them develop an idea in that short period of time, which means that in a service we could get three or four of those uh, presented, and you could, you could be encouraged in the larger picture of what's happening uh, in a corner of our church as well. Another reason I have to be encouraged was the One Conference. How many of you have heard of the One Conference? The One Conference has uh, been around a while now. Uh, it started, I want to say, in Seattle, but that may not be accurate. It's certainly not that important. It's a young person's movement with a very clear perspective that Jesus Christ is the one and all. Jesus Christ, one period, all period, is what they talk about. And so for the one project as they've been bringing people together, they've been talking about how it is that we keep Jesus as our focus, the center of our lives and theology and, and thinking, how he becomes the one and all. And it's just really encouraging to know that there's that kind of faith being discussed and that kind of preaching going on and hundreds and hundreds of college students. I saw Christy Guy there at the One Conference in Chicago. That was fun. That was exciting. So... Um, young people's movement and great things by God's Spirit with that and in that place. So very, uh, very rich. 
Well, why do I bring that up? I bring that up because if Jesus is the one and the only, and he is who he says he is, the question continues to come to us in the organization and living of our lives. What is center for you? What is at the heart of who you are? Who is the most important individual or being to you? How do you organize the shape of your life? These are the questions that come out. And I'm encouraged to see a large and diverse cross-section of young people stating it unequivocally. Jesus is center. And I take great courage in that. Our texts today all draw on a particular idea, the idea of foundation. Go back to the psalm. Let's do that. 118. One eighteen is long, but nowhere near as long as one nineteen. Twenty-one to twenty-three. I will give thanks for you answered me. You've become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. The psalmist is on to something there. We don't think in these terms because we don't build buildings the way we used to. Our foundations are laid of rebar and concrete. They're inspected by a city inspector who usually wants them to be twice as strong as they need to be. I think Paul has some recent experience with that. Uh, Yes, and Guillermo too, for that matter. What ends up happening in today's world is we build structures in, in very rapid succession, steel, glass, wood, frames. But in biblical times, buildings were stacked rock, dressed and carved. And they had to be structurally sound as they connected one piece to the other. And so as you can imagine, the foundation a stone building would be laid on would need to be very secure and solid indeed, very sound. And as the foundation is constructed, huge rocks are often employed. If you've ever been to Jerusalem or ever planned to go, you'll probably see the Western Wall, Wailing Wall as it's known. Massive stones stacked up on the mountain which Abraham is purported to have been ready to offer Isaac. And in this sacred spot, sacred to Islam, sacred to Judaism, sacred to Christianity, uh, this is also where the temple then was built. The temple that would have existed in the time of Jesus. And the, the foundation that goes into that building of that wall is not only massive but composed of stones that I'm not even sure we know how they move them they're so big just enormous stones of weight and in laying a foundation for a significant building the common explanation we get is that the cornerstone would be the one that sets the pattern or sets the level or strength for all the others, or on which the most weight is applied, perhaps. I don't know that that's either a valid interpretation or an invalid interpretation. I also know that 
Some commentators say it's like a keystone or capstone. That's another term that's used in translating this particular idea. And if you're familiar with architecture that comes much later, medieval times, you see these glorious arched ceilings, vaulted ceilings that come together in a particular point. And that point is a stone that connects four different arches, and then those arches are filled in with stones that comprise the arches for that particular room. Have you seen that structure before? When we see it in modern times, it's cast cement. We've just put up forms and put in rebar and poured cement and made it look like the old way, but it isn't done that way. In fact, a whole society of people, the Freemasons, were born from the art and the science of connecting these rocks in such a way that they could bear weight and they could sustain structures and buildings and floors. And so these archways had a lynch stone, a pin stone, as it were, a keystone that connected the four points of the arch and fit up into the ceiling and bore, in essence, the weight of the building. Now, this isn't true because each stone is taking a piece of the weight and the geometry, and I'm not good at the physics of all of this. Thank God for engineers. But the bottom line is, the whole thing would come apart if it weren't for that stone. And some commentators think that that's what is being talked about. It's the keystone of an arch. It's the keystone of something that holds the structure up. It doesn't really matter what we see in Scripture when it says cornerstone. When we see in Scripture the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice and be glad. When we get to this, we're talking about a part of the building that is going to determine its strength and its life and its capacity. We're talking about a, a part of the building that is indispensable, that could not be done without. It's not a piece of flooring. It's not a tile on the roof. It's not even a stone in a particular column that's developed. It is a keystone, an arch stone, a cornerstone, something on which everything depends. Well, the psalmist may be speaking poetically or even prophetically, but when we get to Job, we hear something different yet and yet related. Turn with me to that passage, even though we've read it already this morning together. I think it's Job 38 we're after. Now, you know this passage. Job has been surrounded by his friends in the wake of disaster who've counseled him to curse God and die along with his wife. They've been trying to persuade him of his guilt. Surely, Job, you've done wicked things for all of this evil to befall you. And they have uh, tried to comfort him in various ways. They've been very philosophical and very theological and uh, rather deep and dark about who God is in all of this. And Job himself will not curse God and die. He's going to be remain faithful to God and makes famous statements about uh, his own demise and his faithfulness to God. And yet, in the course of all of this, what we have is uh, a moment in which God chooses to speak. 
And he doesn't speak out of a mist or a cloud. He speaks out of a storm. And he challenges Job rhetorically. And he says to Job, it's fine for you to ask all of these questions, to make all of this theology, to have all of these conversations, to declare what it is that you will do. But who will, is it that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Prepare to defend yourself, Job. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off the dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Can you hear God? I can. I know God isn't literally saying this. And I know the language that's employed in Job is poetic and not descriptive per se of the creation process. There's something going on here though because I still hear God speaking. He's speaking in this because he's reminding me as he reminds Job and reminds all of us is, are you not creature? And am I not creator? Am I not Lord? Are you not servant in some senses of scripture, friend, child in others? Am I not father? Are you not son and daughter? Where were you? What is it that you think you know? Out of all of the things that happened to you, what do you really see? How is it that you clearly discern or don't? Tell me. Let me ask you a few questions. And of course, it's rhetorical. We're not meant to answer. Uh, clearly, we don't know. Where was I when he laid earth's foundations? I don't know. I didn't exist. And that's not even the point. As Job, or the author of Job, is putting forth this poetry and speaking for God in this chapter, in the line of this story, a corrective is being made. We have our experiences, we have our ideas, we have our lives that we live, we go through what we go through, we formulate our opinions about reality, and God says, really, let me tell you what's real. I have laid the foundation. I have laid the cornerstone. I have built the building. That's what's real. Job predates, of course, the Psalms, predates the New Testament. So really, we could go back and say this is our first text. And as the psalmist comes along, he's picking up this theme in his own song, in his own poetry. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What do we know? How often do we judge a right? How true are our perspectives? 
In this reminder, Job just helps us to see, to hear. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. God has chosen it and laid the foundation. The building built built upon what God has done and what God will do. That's Psalms. That's Job. When we get to our New Testament passage, Paul incorporates this as well. He does something very interesting with it. He brings in the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile using this. I wouldn't have thought to do it that way, but I'm glad Paul did. He talks about the split. And I'm going to spend a minute on this because it's not actually in our reading, but I think it's worthwhile. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and are called uncircumcision, etc., Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship and in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. But now you who in, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's the kind of opening premise of this section of Scripture. Now, the interesting thing here is that Paul is picking up on something that the One Project has talked about, and I heard Randy Roberts talk about it, and I hear it a lot in discussion. I've even mentioned it here before, I think. We stand as a world divided, or fall, more likely, and as a people divided. We're increasingly polarized. We're increasingly in separate camps. I think around November of last year, I spoke of this kind of in, you know, making an allusion to the election coming up. We're polarized politically. We're polarized socially. We're polarized economically. The gap between rich and poor continues to grow. Milton mentioned this at Sabbath School this morning. We're polarized increasingly. Ethnic strife, religion. We're polarized in every way imaginable as a people. And this is the situation that Jews were living in. They were living in a situation of polarization. There were the Jews, those who belonged, the children of Abraham, those who had the right of promise, and there were those out there. And the dividing line was marked in the flesh. Of course, Jesus comes along later and says, you need to be circumcised in the heart, meaning it needs to be something interior, not something exterior. Paul will pick this up. Eventually, Peter will pick up that as well. And the Gentile mission and work will grow. But in the meantime, Paul is addressing this former status that the Gentiles had of being outcast, of not being acceptable, the division that existed between Jew and Gentile, the wall. And this is hopefully instructive in our lives because we're constantly faced with walls and barriers. We're constantly polarized ourselves. The One Project, with its focus on Jesus only, Jesus one, Jesus only. The focus of Jesus central mitigates this. In Christ, there is no east or west, you see. In Christ, there is no 
Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. In Christ we have a sure place and foundation. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, dividing the wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Could not be more clear. Dividing line is not meaningful. The barrier is no longer there. Christ's death has torn it down. Those who were formerly not a part have a part. And he died and he did this not just to reconcile the two, but to bring, to bring them together as one people. It is the act of Jesus Christ that brings these separate parties together. It is the act of Jesus Christ that tears down that barrier. It is the person of Jesus Christ in whom all belong. It's a powerful piece. It's a sermon of its own in Ephesians 2 here. God has declared something new, a new order. The old order was chosen people, excluded people. The new order is all of you have been chosen. There is no wall. And yet we live our lives as if there were. We continue to be divided, polarized, pulled every which way. Rich continue to get richer and poor, poor, and the story goes on. Consequently, conclusion here, you, speaking to the Gentiles, Paul is, are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Now, household. We're talking about a household that is constructed not of wood or materials per se, but people. Yes? Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus Christ himself as what? The chief cornerstone. So there's the cornerstone of the temple and real buildings that are made of material things. And there's the cornerstone of the building that Jesus constructs that is a metaphor for the way in which his house works. And in Jesus' house, he is the chief cornerstone. He is the lock rock. He is the keystone. He's the most, the capstone. He's, pick your word, he's the one who holds it all together. 
He's the one who holds it together by virtue of his incarnation. He's the one who holds it together by virtue of his ministry. He's the one who holds it together by the grace, the miracles, the love, the teaching, everything that he brought in the course of that ministry. And he's the one who holds it together and reconciles the world to himself and to the Father in this moment of self-sacrificing love we know as crucifixion. He cements it with his life and resurrection and declares the battle to be over. The house has been built, and you have been built into it. Now, how will you live? How will you live? What will be center for you? May Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our friend, be the cornerstone of your life and mine, our one, our all, for now and all eternity. Amen.